Welcome to American Girlies, the podcast where Canadian historians read the American girl novels. I'm Sonia Ann. I'm Margo Machu. I'm Hannah Sparwasser Soroka, and today's book is Samantha Surprise by Maxine Rocher, published in 1986. We're going to start with a quick summary, a little bit of historical context before discussing the book that we all just read. Sounds great. I can't wait for Christmas in July. It's not July when we put this out. Oh, never mind. (laughs) Sounds great. I can't wait for Christmas sometime in August. It is July. Peek behind the curtain. We're vague summer. We're recording this in July, and uh, it is like it's been smoky and hot, and not at all festive Mm, delicious yeah perfect Okay, so for the summary, this book takes place at Christmas time, and Samantha is so excited to participate in all her lovely Christmas traditions, including gingerbread houses and festive parties and things like this. And then she finds to her surprise and disappointment that all of these traditional Christmas activities have been canceled because Cornelia, Uncle Guard's special friend, is joining them for the holidays this year. So Samantha is really angry with Cornelia uh, because she feels like it's all Cornelia's fault that her holiday has been ruined. Then it turns out Cornelia is a lovely person and insists on doing all of Samantha's favorite traditions with her. So Christmas is saved. Uh, Samantha gives Cornelia a really thoughtful gift. Uh, The whole family celebrates together and Uncle Guard proposes Samantha's invited to be a bridesmaid. The end. Um, it's a cute little story. It's sweet. It's really delightful, actually. I was extremely uh, pleased about it. I don't know. We'll get into this in the discussion. There's a couple plot turns, but in general, it's quite lovely. So now for just a little bit of historical context, this is a Christmas story. Um, And so as a result, our peek into the past focuses on Christmas, and they do actually quite a nice job of describing how the Christmas celebration would have happened in Samantha's socioeconomic circle and in the region of America where she was living. So at this time, this is what we call the Edwardian period, even though Edward is not king of America, obviously. But British style celebrations are very much in vogue for wealthy Americans. They're taking their cues from the British Christmas celebration, which by the Edwardian period, you know, is developing directly out of a Victorian Christmas tradition, which is heavily influenced by German and Central European traditions, right? I think we've all kind of maybe heard the story that the first Christmas tree in the English-speaking world was brought by Prince Albert, the husband of Queen Victoria, Yes, because it was a German tradition. He was a German prince. And so it was something that they participated in with their family, and it became very trendy because the royal family was doing it. By the time Samantha is celebrating Christmas in 1904, uh, Christmas trees and gingerbread houses and things like that haven't actually been around very long. They've been around for less than a century, but they've become just entrenched as the classic Christmas tradition. And along with that come a lot of British things that maybe aren't part of a North American Christmas anymore, like mince pies and Christmas pudding. And this book actually does a really lovely job giving you all the little touches of Uh, All the things like Mrs. Hawkins is cooking and preparing. But that's Christmas for wealthy people. So wealthy families had elaborate Christmas dinners. They had a gift exchange on the 25th. Less wealthy families didn't have the same level of luxury around the holidays. Um, I think it's really interesting that Nellie isn't really a part of this book. Because Nellie's Christmas experience would have been working in service to provide a seamless holiday experience for her employers. So Nellie would have been serving the Christmas meal, cleaning up after the meal, preparing all the decorations so everything looks immaculate. 
and maybe in some cases the service would have like a private celebration in the kitchen while the family was eating their meal or in between other duties but generally speaking servants did not get to celebrate christmas often on uh december 26th which is boxing day or the feast of saint stephen um wealthy families would give gifts to uh, servants and other tradespeople. Um, it's also a day that's traditional for charitable giving, and a big part of the kind of wealthy Christmas tradition is to be seen to be generous, so to be doing public acts of charity. The tradition of Boxing Day has existed since the 17th century. Like This is a very, very old tradition to give people tips on this day, and it's still practiced in a lot of the English-speaking world. Um, and in Canada, for example, it's it's a federal holiday. You don't go back to work the day after Christmas. It's also kind of a shopping day now, right? You get your Boxing Day sale. Yeah, I was going to say I kind of hate how it has turned into this like very, very consumerist day where it's instead of going out and like doing something useful or like even just extending the holiday and spending time with your family. It's like, but what if you buy more things after just receiving a bunch of presents yesterday? It's kind of gone. I mean, like if you know your carols, you'll know that good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen. So that day has been associated with charitable giving for, for a very long time. The term Boxing Day, like I said, goes back to the 17th century in England. Um, well, and to be clear, it's because you're boxing up yeah. things to give to the less fortunate. It, it is not a boxing no. match. You know, you're putting everything no, in a and there's. I have container. also seen this thing that it, I see it in like children's history literature that Boxing Day is the day that the servants and the upstairs folks switch positions. So the, the, the family waits on the servants. That's not a tradition as far as I can tell. Like that doesn't seem to be an intro. I mean, some families may have practiced it, but that doesn't seem to be an official part of traditional boxing day no i think that probably comes from the a very skewed perception of when christmas was a reveling holiday which boxing day is in part a sort of slow reaction to not approving of of reveling holidays anymore it's the influence of like very restrictive protestantism yes and also by by samantha's lifetime (sighs) christmas is a family occasion and not not even not a church going occasion and certainly not a public rebel um so at any rate there's sort of two sides to this christmas story one which is samantha's joy and delight at all the beautiful christmas traditions and the other is the insane amount of labor it takes to produce all that christmas magic uh and the people who are producing it don't have access to any of that except a tiny little taste right at the end of the season when their employers give them presents. And I mean, to some extent, that's still the case today, that there is a lot of thankless work often done by women that goes into producing Christmas magic. Um, And also because capitalism and consumer culture, there is a broader expectation that everyone should be doing this extravagant level of Christmas magic, Um, which we can talk about in our discussion which is coming up now (laughs) what did you think of this book I just thought it was a very wholesome, cute little story. I have to say, I think, you know, as as we talked about, I think, before we started recording, this is the only American Girl book that Maxine Rose Scher wrote. And I think, well done. First kick at the can, only kick at the can, and you get it right? Like, good job. It was very cute and very sweet. Yes. And I know, like, one of the, one of the things that I was thinking about throughout it was, I mean, I think that they're are some missed opportunities but like in our question of like would I give this to a child like yeah <laughs> and like yeah it's much more I, I think it's much more like emotionally focused on like Samantha's inner world than any of the other books that we've read yes like Samantha feels like a person more in this and she's like working through her little nine-year-old feelings and I found that really cute and sweet 
Yeah. And I wanted to know what you guys thought about, because I think there is still like a historical kind of themes running through this, but it's much more focused on the kind of day-to-day material culture. And we haven't talked about material culture before on the podcast. So I kind of wanted to talk about that now (laughs) because it's been sort of woven through the whole story. Yeah, this really jumped out at me in this book in particular. So material culture for our listeners is a term that we use in history that basically refers to material stuff, to the things that people use in their lives. And obviously, the stuff we use is cultural. Yeah, essentially, like, not just what the things are or how they look, but the way that they're used, the way that they're treated when being used, and then also the way that they're disposed of when they're no longer useful, and where those determinations are. So, right, most of the times that we're talking about in American Girl novels, things are much more precious than they are now, which I think is one of the things that has been a through line in some of the books, which I think is nice. But Yeah, and I think it's also just kind of gives little little bits of context into what the culture is like at the time and what's available for people, what they're valuing, what they're thinking about. Like the book kind of opens with Samantha talking to her friend Ida and they're, you know, looking at the the Christmas displays in the window, looking at the toys and talking about like oh, yeah, I'd really like that doll because she's dressed in pink and holding a nutcracker just like in the ballet. And it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Like, you know, you're seeing what's popular. What are people doing at this time? And there's a lovely scene where Samantha talks about how she's put a lot of effort into making everybody a Christmas present that she cares about. Yes. And she's made Nellie or she's yeah, she's made Nellie a new cape for Lydia the doll. Uh, she's made mm-hmm. Jesse a strawberry shaped pin cushion, which I think is such a lovely gift. I, I would be stoked if somebody gave me that today, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she like decoupages a box. Yeah. Like it's it's also giving insight right into the kinds of skills that a girl at this time, and especially in her socioeconomic class, is supposed to have, right? Like she can do sewing projects she's doing decoupage she's doing these things that are appropriate for a young lady but also she's nine Mm -hmm. and makes the comment that her grandmother has told her that handmade gifts are better yes so she's purposefully making it which means that like she is a nine-year-old who has the option to purchase multiple gifts and at one point in time stays in town by herself to go to shops which i don't know about anybody else but in 2002 when i was reading these books actually might have been a little bit earlier than that i was not allowed to go into town by myself and i had no money yeah and i think this is the thing right is that it does show this kind of it's also kind of giving that insight into what childhood is like and there has been some recent scholarship done on this about you know the way that children today are so much they're under so much more surveillance than they were in the past like it was completely normal at this point even like a few decades ago for kids to walk to and from school go to each other's houses on their own go and you know go to the park by themselves and now it's like oh my god a a nine-year-old out by themselves Clearly, the parents are negligent and this child is about to die at any second. (laughs) Um, I want to circle back to our comments on material culture Mm -hmm. because Samantha's big disappointment in this book, Mm -hmm. like the moment that really struck me as kind of emotionally devastating is the moment where she's put all this labor and all this energy into making homemade Christmas decorations only to yeah. find out oh it was so yeah sad. only to come down ready to string her beautiful uh cranberry garland around the banister only to find out that her grand mary has engaged a florist to decorate the whole house because regular decorations won't do because miss cornelia is coming for christmas this year so everything has to be deluxe it's not just a family celebration yeah. they have company and there's a scene where she finds the one room that hasn't been decorated and puts her little paper snowflakes on the window. And then Elsa, the housemaid, comes in and tears them up and yells at her about, 
I can't have you in my way. I have so much work to do for Miss Cornelia coming. All of your little dust catcher projects are going to have to go in the garbage. It was so devastating because, again, this is a child who has clearly been raised to understand that homemade is better and homemade is more thoughtful, only now to suddenly be told, like, your dinky little crafts aren't good enough for Miss Cornelia. Yeah, and it was really sad. She's like, has her little, her snowmen made out of little cotton balls? They just, there's a little illustration of them, and I'm like, oh, my heart. And like, don't throw those away. Jesse taught her to sew Christmas angels. Like, it's really, really, really upsetting. But, and it's this gratuitously yeah. mean moment, right? Elsa's not just saying, sorry, kid, grandma says that professional decorations this year. She's tearing up the yeah, crap. Or like, why don't you, why don't you go and talk to your grandma about like what we're doing for Christmas yeah. or anything like that? It's no. Rip. Like, shred yeah tearing stuff uh and it's really sad and then immediately afterwards she goes to see mrs hawkins in the kitchen the cook and says i've had some ideas for my gingerbread house that i make every year and mrs hawkins says sorry dear not this year because miss cornelia is coming so your grandmother needs me to make a whole lot more food but it's much kinder and much more reasonable and the tone is you're a big girl so you'll understand i hope and not, I'm going to tear apart your stupid snowflakes, kid. Yeah, and then the final disappointment in that chapter where she goes to Grand Mary and Grand Mary tells her, uh, you know how you were going to go to your friend's Christmas party and there was going to be magic tricks and games. You could wear your new dress. Yep, everything was going to be great. Too bad. You have to stay home and hang out with Cornelia. But So I understand I why at this point she's like, ugh, why does Uncle Gardner have to bring home his girlfriend? Like, ugh, man. But also, I this sent me down a rabbit hole because Elsa's so over-the-top mean. I don't know what you made of yes. this, but it was so surprising and shocking to me that I went down the rabbit hole of would the housemaid talk to the grandmother of her or the granddaughter of her employer this way? Like, mm-hmm. is this a thing? And I didn't come up with a firm conclusion, but it did kind of take me into this realm of Edwardian childhood and also household staff. Because the Edwardian period is a period of transition in the role of the child. So we have this Victorian world where children should be seen but not heard. And it's very, very strict in bringing up a child. Um, and by the Edwardian period, you have a lot more of a romantic idea of childhood. So child children are innocent and children have different needs than adults and children should be catered to to some extent. Um, and so Grand Mary is really old school, right? She still maintains the you only see me for an hour a day tradition of the Victorian era. Um, yeah. But the fact that Samantha is able to go to the store by herself and is able to have her own money and spend it on presents as she sees fit. That's a lot more the Edwardian mold where childhood is becoming a little more informal. And in general, in the Edwardian period, uh, the household is becoming more informal. So you don't have battalions of servants anymore. You're kind of paring it down a little bit to be more modern. And that's the case in, in Britain, America mm. is one step less formal than Britain. You can always assume that, you know, even at the height of the Victorian era, <laughs> the United yeah. States was, the, was a little more casual. So the fact that yeah. Grand Mary has a maid and a cook and uh, a chauffeur and for some inexplicable reason, a seamstress, that's a lot more in keeping with what other Edwardian households would have had. But Samantha tradition traditionally would have had a governess too or a nanny or something yeah uh and the fact that she didn't means that the servants were probably also expected to keep an eye on her and may have had the ability to discipline her or be harsh on her yeah that's just what i was going to say is that i do think that it kind of makes sense in this context right because grand mary is still keeping that i only see this child for maybe an hour a day we maybe have dinner together kind of vibe So as mean as Elsa's coming off in this scene, I can also sort of understand where she's coming from, where it's like, I have to clean this whole house. I have to put up all this stuff. I have all this extra work. 
And I'm also like taking on this role of nanny slash governess slash like, do I think it's right to tear up a kid's decorations? No, but I understand where she's coming from. It's like, oh my God, my employer told me it's only professional decorations this year. Like we've got the florist out there. I cannot be dealing with another thing. And I just, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's not great, but I think it does. And it, it creates a foil for the way that the other characters treat her as well. Like, I think that's part of it is that they can't have every adult just be like, wow, Samantha, great. Let's have a positive, lovely time. Yes. I think, I think that Elsa is gratuitously mean for narrative reasons, that the plot needs a foil um, yeah. for nice Mrs. Hawkins. But the fact that Elsa feels comfortable yelling at the child is one of those things where in some households that would absolutely be part of her duties and in some households she could get fired point blank for that. Yeah. I think it really depends on how how much Grand Mary is willing to be upset about that and i i don't i don't know we haven't had enough characterization for me to know if she'd be fine with this or not i think is the question Grand Mary is a big mystery to all of us yeah she kind of comes in <laughs> when the, the plot things... needs her and then she's gone into the into the ether again <laughs> one of the things i do find interesting about all of this uh sort of in terms of the how the material culture is represented not just in like the actual objects but in how they're talking about them is that it i think it does and like obviously this i mean this might be reading a bit into it but i think the more that i think about it like at first i was kind of confused about this but i think the more that i think about it the more it like kind of accurately rep represents that they're in this shifting period mm -hmm. because there is a sort of convoluted message about what is the most valuable kinds of objects here because on the one hand samantha's told that handmade gifts are the best um but the gift that she receives that's like the most important to her is a store-bought doll um the big like gift moment is that she decides to give cornelia the handmade gift instead of the one that she bought specifically for her and it's supposed to be this thing of like this is the best gift that i had to offer and so i'm going to give it to cornelia now and that's supposed to be like this big emotive moment um but also like as soon as they find out that somebody is like special is coming for christmas then everything has to be purchased and purchased from a seemingly fancy store where the delivery boys have to wear little military outfits um, and they spend a bunch of time like going to shops and things and so I think it's a interesting period where we're coming to the end of moving thoroughly into a consumer culture yeah right like that really starts in the like late 1800s um when like factory stuff you know it starts with like buying prefabricated like machine made cloth and like using that to make clothes at home but then soon like by this period i don't think we're quite to the place of purchasing ready-made clothing is like the fashionable thing to do but we are getting into a place where there are like des designing houses the couture movement's happening um, and people are like purchasing more and more things and that's being seen as like the the valuable fancy thing to do is to have like consumer goods rather than I think than it's important goods. that you talked about couture because couture and these design houses are generally European um, and this is a period yep. where transatlantic shipping is fast and reliable um, so import yeah. goods. Thank you, Robert yeah. Fulton and that sure. steamboat. <laughs> uh, but so import goods are really, uh, av they're available and they're luxurious and they're popular. Um, so you get things like the present that Samantha initially buys for Cornelia, mm -hmm. but then gives to Uncle Gard is a pound of French truffles which have been imported from France and they're a premium object. And it's quite a generous, luxurious yeah. gift. 
Um, she gets this present when Cornelia has won her over and she's realized that Cornelia is actually very cool and has good taste. So she <laughs> can get her a really nice present. Because, yeah, at first she thinks she's not going to get Cornelia anything because Cornelia's ruined Christmas. And then there's this lovely bit where every time Cornelia does something nice, she gets upgraded. She goes from no present to bath salts to hankies <laughs> to and then finally she gets the chocolates. Um, and then at the last and minute then on Christmas Day, yeah. she gets the beautiful jewelry box that Samantha made herself originally for Uncle Guard's cufflinks. Uh, and then Uncle Guard gets a pound of French truffles. But the fact that these are import goods, um, and and chocolate is, of course, also a colonial good, right? Chocolate is not a plant yep. that grows yeah. in Europe. It is a plant that grows in hotter climates, in the Americas originally. So you see this proliferation of import goods and colonial import goods. So we were talking about Christmas oranges, a lot of the spices. So at one point, Samantha puts cinnamon in her hot chocolate. That's a colonial import good as well. Technology is improving. So the steamboat has made things really reliable, has made transatlantic trade reliable. But also, it's a, it's a positive feedback loop. The popularity of colonial goods, finances, shipping, the reliability of shipping gets more colonial goods into more people's hands. I think the other thing to make clear about this since like, I mean, this is for for children, and so it's not super clear. Uh, the other thing that's like that's happening here in terms of like ideas about America is that this is a period where, while not saying it explicitly, because there is some weird things about like a cultural distinction from England, the U.S. is sort of like unapologetically imperial in this yeah. period. Yeah. So it's not just about consumer goods but it, it is really specifically about this is a thing I purchased with American money for my American home and it comes from another part of the world so it's not just like France but it's having things from Asia and India and South America and the Philippines <laughs> like we're getting into like American imperialism in the Pacific um, and places that, like, culturally, I don't think a lot of Americans realize are technically part of the U.S. and or, like, recently not part of the U.S. Um, these kinds of American territories and Congress, like, we're getting into that expansion um, across the Pacific. And then the, like, even outside of actual, like, political and militaristic conquest the financial conquest of american capitalism there's kind of two things that this brought up for me your your discussion of like capitalism and expansion one is cornelia's insistence that she wants to fly in a plane uh and the other yeah. is the honking big diamond that uncle guard gives her at the end of the book and i don't know do you have thoughts on on both of these things thoughts on cornelia I've done some research, but I, I'm willing to, I can hold off until like we get there. Yes, I have a question because at the end of the book, right, Uncle Guard gets mm -hmm. down on one knee. He gives Cornelia the present. It is a diamond ring. And I don't know because I'm a medieval historian. Are diamond engagement rings a thing in 1904? Because I it thought that becoming. that's not <laughs> like a big thing until you, until like, what the 40s i went yeah i went down that rabbit hole to like specifically a little, have a diamond it's a little earlier do we have time i went to talk about i went the down the rabbit hole <laughs> of this which is that <laughs> do we have the period like because this also then we can get into talking about um well but but i actually well. looked into turn of the century <laughs> engagements and diamonds mm -hmm. Yeah, which is that engagement rings have been a thing for a very long time. Uh, engagement jewelry in general, yeah, not yeah, necessarily yeah. rings, but in the 19th and 20th century, it's pretty much rings are the thing. And yeah. basically engagement ring is insurance if the betrothal falls through. So you have some money to like figure your life out afterwards. Yeah, guy's got to prove that he's he's serious. Yeah, he's sticking around. For sure. You know? uh, Makes sense. Um, but so rings are very much common at the turn of the century. Diamonds as an engagement ring setting, as, as the precious stone that is set into the ring, really are the province of the ultra-rich. So the diamond craze right. 
kind of starts in 1852 when Queen Victoria sets the Koh-i-Noor diamond into her crown, which speaking of colonial goods, Uh most of the diamonds in this period are coming from India and South Africa. They are products of the colonized earth. You can't get more literal than that. And that's why the Koh-i-Noor diamond should be returned to its original owners because it was stolen from them. Anyway, the setting of the Koh-i-Noor diamond sets off this mania for, for diamonds as a luxury item. And at this point, there aren't as many diamonds being pulled out of the earth. They're just not being found as much. So they are very much the province of the ultra-wealthy. Extremely wealthy people can afford to buy a diamond engagement ring. But unless Uncle Guard is like British royalty wealthy, he's probably not buying a diamond for that ring. Like he's certainly buying a ring at this point. Likely he would buy a different stone to set in it. A different precious stone. I mean, these are wealthy people, but I don't think yeah. that the Parkingtons are diamond engagement ring. Yeah, they're not. They're not the equivalents of billionaires. Aristocracy. Yeah. So the diamond engagement ring is very much a luxury object that people covet, but very, very few people can actually access it. And it, it, this kind of remains the pattern throughout the first chunk of the 20th century. So. The diamonds uh, are out of reach of most people, especially once you get into the Great Depression um, and like the, the world wars. Um, and it's in 1947 that or that De Beers launches their diamond engagement ring campaign, where at this point they had practically a monopoly. They had a cartel on diamonds in the world. So they controlled the market, which meant that they were able to make diamonds more expensive than they're worth, but more accessible than they previously had been. And they began pushing really hard that the only engagement ring is a diamond. And the way that you should be buying a diamond is three times your monthly salary. And uh, yeah, and this campaign is massively successful, as we can see by the fact that diamond engagement rings are still the absolute norm today. And in the 1980s, this is projected backwards onto 1904. And it's that... that statement by De Beers about like what you should be spending on these things like what an engagement ring should be worth um becomes sort of part of just like basic no these like cultural ideas yeah at least in the U.S. um where this is really common and really really popular these things that we just think of as like this is what has always been done in the same way that a lot of like Christmas traditions, since this is a Christmas episode, a lot of Christmas traditions uh, come out of Dickens novels of all things, um, or those weird morbid Christmas cards. Um, Or, I mean, this is a good illustration of material culture (laughs) and what it means. Like an engagement ring is not just a neutral object that we've always, we've always done it this way. It's a product of our culture, which includes the culture of advertising. Yeah. It includes a culture that has benefited from extractive colonialism. And I think that's really interesting in a series of books that's about selling dolls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing that we've talked about a lot is that it feels frustrating the level at which, like, I think that they're on the one hand, this is a useful entry point into historical study. You know, we can talk about culture and how culture changes. Like, I really love as just sort of a hobby, like costume history and understanding why people dress the way that they do. But at a certain point, (laughs) it feels very like if you're trying to do some sort of like public education in the way that this is right for children, at a certain point, it really is just look at all the stuff you could have from the past and less a like actual historical education well, actually like i think they get a lot of the material culture stuff right like the food is yeah yeah exactly. no i'm saying i'm not saying i'm not saying that like they're not getting it right i think this is like what we've talked about in other episodes that like because they're so focused on material goods and on things that they can create as like accessories for the dolls it becomes sort of just a focus on the de- like how great the development of consumer culture is and we see that in the peak and the past i think especially we've seen it in like the first samantha book and in like kirsten where all of the peak and the past are like look how great machines are for getting 
like the Larsons, all of this stuff. And here's then all of this stuff that you can buy for your doll. Yeah, I mean, we do have to remember that these books are ultimately a marketing campaign. Yeah, exactly. But that that being said... I mean, it feels disingenuous. They do get it right, is the thing. That it is factually accurate. So it is sort of that, like, well... I mean, chances are, if you're buying these books, you've already bought into the $200 doll nonsense. So, like... (laughs) Yeah, and I, I know we're not judging these books primarily based on the quality or the prose or the characterization but it all feels kind of organic to samantha's world that she's wearing a new christmas dress and that she desperately wants the pretty doll like it feels and i mean of course they invented her this way on purpose but as a character you can see that she's both really thoughtful but also really limited by being nine years old like she cares so much about her family that she's made all these beautiful presents but she gets so angry and disappointed that she decides not to get anything for Cornelia. And and you can see, and when she suddenly realizes like, oh no, I have to get her something right now. You can see her kind of panic about which consumer good is going to be good enough. Yeah. And that feels on the one hand, yes, like it is trying to tell little children, buy the Christmas dress, buy the big version of the Christmas dress so you can wear it at Christmas. <laughs> But it also feels like a genuine story about a wealthy nine-year-old in 1904. I think everything feels a little less forced with Samantha than it did with Kirsten. Yeah. Where it was like, why is Kirsten so totally consumed with like purchasing things? Or why is the peek into the past exclusively about consumer goods? And I again, like I did really like this book, and I think that they did some really interesting things things with it like I think that it's a, an f- effective look at I mean we've already like talked about so many things that it did did well mm-hmm. I think there was a missed opportunity because the other two books really focused on Samantha's in relation to Nellie and the sort of disparity in their lives and that Nellie is only thrown in for a moment and it's not really talked about like what Nellie's Christmas is going to look like that is inferred from peek into the past information. Oh, true, true. That I think there was a moment where like the story could have been less about Cornelia and more about these two central figures that have been Yeah. and more about that kind of like conversation, but um there would be less to buy <laughs> in that story. I mean, but not necessarily because this is something I did want to talk about is that they sold a Nellie doll. So they yeah. could have woven in a section about Nellie and her Christmas and what that's like. And you could still have, you know, have Nellie receiving something for Christmas and then that's something that you buy for your doll, right? Like, yeah. I guess so, so I think, like, there would have still been plenty of marketing opportunity <laughs> there. Because it's it does sound like you know, especially coming back to what we were talking about with Boxing Day, right? Like, Nellie might receive, like, new clothes as part of her Boxing Day package. Like, oh, now you have a new little dress for your your poor doll as well as the rich doll. Like, this is great. But yeah, I did think it was interesting that they chose to really, really gloss over anything about what's going on with Nellie in this one. But I think we also wanted to do a quick comparison with Kirsten's yeah. Christmas story. Yeah. Because I think, Hannah, you were talking earlier about Grand Mary's age. Yes. So, I, I mean, this is me being going totally rogue. This is rogue math. It's <laughs> fanon. No one can stop No one us. can stop me. <laughs> Grand Mary is probably in her 50s, I would say. Given that Uncle Guard is just now settling down, I would put him at roughly 30, at which point it makes sense that she's maybe in her, like, in her 50s at some point. I'm going to say mid-50s because that's the middle of the 50s. If she's in her (laughs) mid-50s, then she's almost the exact same age as Kirsten's baby sister. Um, And would have grown up in... not victorian because again queen victoria was not queen of america very importantly she did claim to be queen of almost everything else though uh but yeah and i think that i mean people can people get mad about calling it the victorian or edwardian like if you're but 
it's a useful discussion because there's still yes it's still so heavily influenced well and grand grand mary would have been growing up in a world and in a culture because she's growing up wealthy in her second half of the 19th century era she would have been growing up in an in a society that took its cultural cues from britain yes um and so as a result like the kind of victorian christmas with the christmas tree and the gingerbread that's not really part of kristen's story or kirsten's story i apologize at all but it probably would have been part of grand mary's upbringing and it's probably something that she would have done with her children yeah there's this sense that i get that there's almost like a kind of like a parallel story we could tell about Grand Mary. And this is me just being very like inventive and going off on my own little limb. And it made me think a lot about Kirsten's Christmas versus Samantha. I mean, I think it is really interesting seeing kind of that contrast, right? Where in Kirsten's story, it's still very much like the focus is, yes, we're, we're following, like we have these family traditions, but there's not a lot in the way of like gifts or consumer goods or that kind of thing. Like it's her wearing her nightgown with a sash. She makes the wreath. She puts the candles on it that they already own. Um, and the the surprise is here. I'm serving you coffee and coffee and cake. They have access to consumer goods, but it's, it's less so, especially in the middle of winter. And like they had just moved there, but it's still this like quite a jarring compare and contrast to go from wow it's nice to do a fun little holiday tradition and eat cake with my family versus samantha's christmas where it's everyone has to have a gift for everyone else and they have to be wrapped in paper and they have to be under the tree that is also covered in consumer goods yes Mm -hmm. another thing i noticed is that uh kirsten's story is a religious holiday right she's celebrating saint lucia whereas Samantha's Christmas seems pretty secular. Like they sing some Christmas songs, but Samantha's favorite Christmas song is Oh Christmas Tree, which is a yeah. a song that is not about the baby Jesus. It's it, <laughs> you know, in a lot of the songs and carols written in the late 19th century, I mean you have things like A Little Town of Bethlehem and We Three Kings which are about the baby Jesus, but you also see Jingle Bells, right? Jingle Bells is written yeah. uh in mm-hmm. the late 19th century. So the holiday is shifting from being saints and the baby Jesus to being... Although, allegedly, I don't. someone tell me if this is correct. I thought the Jingle Bells was written for Thanksgiving because the idea is you're going to go to your, like, Thanksgiving thing or something. I like I that even better. I remember reading somewhere that it was, like, it was originally something... Or, like, maybe a New Year's song. I just remember reading somewhere that it was not intended for Christmas initially, but I could be I mean, wrong. It's, this is it's like, a slaying There song. was something in my lizard brain. I love oh, that. Because okay, is it written for Christmas? If Maybe I'm thinking of something Some else. historical accounts report that the tomb was first performed as a Thanksgiving service at the church of either Pierpont's right. father. I knew. I love brother. that. And the lyrics might have been too risque for an ecclesiastical Because they're cuddling in the sleigh. I love that. Well, and also the sleigh overturns. The horse was upsought. Soon we were upsought. So they end up on top of each other. It's not just cuddling. Which happens to... Full contact on the ground. Which happens to Cornelia during the full contact slaying scene where she is violently ejected from the toboggan. Um, yeah, but it's fine because she's a cool. Yeah, girl, she's not like so. other girls. Um, but yeah, so but but anyway, Samantha's coming up in an age where Christmas carols and holiday carols and songs in general are not religious. Like she's she's growing up in a culture that is still culturally Christian. Like a Christian hegemony rules America to this very day. But her Christmas family holiday is not about going to church and listening to a sermon. Or about celebrating saints. It's about the family and doing something with the family and being in the same space and having a meal and presence with your family. Yes. We see that family focus in Kirsten as well, but it's a saint celebration. And like, yeah, I think also with the Boxing Day stuff, like no one is saying, oh, let's give the servants presents because it is the the feast of St. Stephen. 
they're saying like this is the day we tip everybody let's give everybody their tip on tip day <laughs> like it is it is i don't know i get i get mail from my mail carrier saying like hello it's the holiday season and i tip like we still have this tradition of like oh it's tip time for all the people who provide us with the things mm-hmm. yeah yeah oh do we know when like when boxing day because it's like not currently a thing in the US. No, but there is a thing, right, where um American Christmas traditions and American holiday traditions are taking the cues from Britain, but then it diverges again. Yeah. By the time of the First yeah. World War, it's diverged again where American Christmas traditions are considered sort of specifically American. Uh and you see things like Americans yeah. do gingerbread houses and in the UK that became less of a thing. I think it is now just because like cultural homogeneity, but now the UK is taking cues from like what American Christmas looks like. But yeah, in Samantha's era, Boxing Day might be something that they just pulled from British tradition. Because Peek into the Past specifically mentions Boxing Day as the holiday. But yeah. by the time of the First World War, they dropped that. Yeah, it makes sense. Right. And it was only okay. ever a holiday. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's what my question is. Like, when did that shift happen away yeah. from America? And it's only a holiday that. for like it's a day off for the servants. Uh but it's yeah. really only a holiday for wealthy people. So servants get a day off, the wealthy people eat their leftovers. But if you're a factory worker, you're back on the line. Like at no point <laughs> is this a federal holiday for anybody. Anyway. So yeah. Are we ready to start rating things? Yeah, let's rate and review. Out of a possible five torn paper snowflakes, <laughs> justice for the snowmen, uh, how are we rating Samantha? Would we give this to a child? How many torn paper snowflakes do we give this? I think I'm going to start us out strong. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give this four snowflakes. The book, I think it does a good job showing Christmas at this time. We get a lot of material culture. We get a lot of, like, discussions about newfangled ideas like airplanes and little scenes of them <laughs> going on a sled ride or, or not a sled ride, a sleigh ride with the horses still, right? It's very, you know, gives that kind of understanding of what this time period looks like for someone like Samantha. It does lose one paper snowflake, though, because... Justice for Nellie. She should have been in this book more. There should have been some yeah. discussion there. Margo? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I needed to check the airplane thing again, because I was like, I'm from North Carolina. I thought that airplanes, like, literally had just been, yes. they had. It was the less first than woman. It was December 17th, 1903 was the first actual flight, which was only like 120 yards. The first woman so. flew, the first women flew in a plane, flew in planes in 1908. Like the first woman passenger okay. and the first woman parachutist both flew in 1908. Ooh. So it's just around the corner. Sorry. I just had to, had to yeah. clarify that because I was like, they're talking about, about airplanes, but they're very new. They've only gone, they've only flown like, a hundred yards in in a year <laughs> yeah um anyway i'm with grandmary on that uh i i yeah i give like four four and a half like obviously um in my little communist heart i wish that it was more about the horrifying inequality and everything that's happening especially when they have the option of like nelly right there uh but it's like a super cute story and it's fun and i think it does a good job of even outside of his like the historical teachings like which are nice and good and we've already talked about all of that but it does a nice little job of talking about like kind of icky emotions of being disappointed and being mad at somebody else who isn't actually like purposefully causing your disappointment but yeah i thought that was like a good and getting getting over that and getting past it i thought i always think that like teaching emotions yeah i thought that was gonna say say, that Um, i think is one of the reasons why i would give a child this (laughs) book is to like yeah sometimes things don't work out the way we want them to but we should just try and roll with it a little bit um yeah yeah 
something better might happen because of it or you know you might also enjoy the new plans Um, but yeah I'm a four out of five on this one I thought it was sweet I thought there were some nice little bits I agree with Sonia though that it loses a torn paper snowflake for not (laughs) giving us enough Nelly um yeah that means our our group rating is something like a 4.2 uh, which means nice, that this yeah. is one of the better ones. Like, I feel like Samantha's been, we've been moving in a nice upward trajectory yeah. from the depths of Kirsten's miserable childhood. Yeah. I'm I'm interested to see how Samantha keeps rolling because next week we start our third author of Samantha books. Wow. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to see if they stick the landing on this girly. Uh, so on that note, we really would love to have you tune in for that as we all learn more about Samantha and her world and whether she gets to experience genuine human joy, <laughs> whether her, her life is nice. So on that note, thanks, girlies. American Girlies is a production of the Baba Yaga Project. We are produced by Sam Glee Freeman. We are hosted by Sonia Ann, Margaret Mathieu, and Hannah Sparwasser Soroka. That's me! Our music is composed and performed by Esther Roos Teal. This episode was edited by Sam Glee Freeman and mixed by Margot Mathieu. This podcast is brought to you by Patreon supporters just like you. If you would like to support the show, please check out patreon.com slash Project for bonus content and extra goodies. We are at Baba Yaga Project on Twitter and at The Baba Yaga Project on TikTok and Instagram.